Certain to Win, The Strategy of John Boyd Applied to Business by Chet Richards. Narrated by Michael Godek. Chapter 3, Sting Like a Bee. We think perhaps we may have gotten inside the enemy's decision-making cycle and arrived with a tempo that put us in a place before they could respond to the impending threat that is now a matter of history. U.S. Army Brigadier General Vincent Brooks, Doha, Qatar, April 4th, 2003. Why some sides always seem to win. In the last chapter, I defined effectiveness solely in terms of numbers and types of equipment. The idea was to illustrate conventional thinking in the military sector. It can be argued that by using this definition, I have deliberately created a straw man that is easy to demolish. It may be easy to demolish intellectually, but it does represent how the military-industrial complex views the essence of war. The Wall Street Journal, for example, recently carried a story called Wars of the Future. In it, the journal describes the additional billions of dollars the Pentagon's new budget devotes to missile defense, high-speed communications equipment, a new aircraft carrier, and conversion of Cold War-era ballistic missile submarines. It concludes with lament that the new wonder weapons may not be ready until after George W. Bush's second term, which would have ended in January 2009. But without them, the U.S. won't be prepared to fight and win the wars of the future, it cried. This article is typical, not only of pro-business publications like the Journal. Frankly, it is difficult to see how this exotic hardware would have prevented, or could prevent in future, attacks like those of September 11, 2001, which cost al-Qaeda perhaps $200,000, and required no weapons development program. What Al-Qaeda did use were factors that have produced victory in combat, those we covered in the last chapter. Since the style of warfare favored by terrorists and their kins and revolutionary groups, narco-trafficking organizations, and just plain criminal syndicates seems to represent the future of conflict, and there is even a thriving subset of the business publishing genre for books starting with guerrilla, Let's explore these factors further. Boyd was famous for browbeating his audiences with the mantra, people, ideas, and hardware, in that order. What we have seen so far reinforces Boyd's conclusion. In all the battles and business examples noted in Chapter 2, as well as in the Pentagon and World Trade Center attacks, Groups of dedicated people found and exploited weakness in their larger and better financed adversaries. The question is, was it luck, or is there some underlying pattern that allows this to happen? In the last chapter, we saw that to create an explicit model of combat, business, or the economy, we had to assume that these activities proceeded according to predictable mathematical patterns, that they form systems. We also found that on many occasions, the smaller or less technologically advanced side won, confounding the predictions of the models. The reason for this reversal, in business and in war, 
appears to be that these smaller organizations were able to avoid or negate the larger's advantage in size and strength. Somehow they had managed not to become systems in the eyes of their larger opponents. This might lead one to suspect that in any competitive endeavor, if you can be modeled, sand-tabled as Boyd referred to it, you aren't using strategy at all, and you can be defeated. Otherwise, the smaller side might occasionally have won by luck, but most likely there would have been no Toyota, which was much smaller than GM at the end of World War II. No Dell, no Walmart, no Microsoft, and no Southwest Airlines. These companies have all survived and prospered long enough that we can safely rule out luck as the main reason for their success. How does the smaller side get away with it and win? He doesn't always, of course. The Confederacy lost to the Union. Poland lost to Germany, Finland to Russia, and Germany to practically the rest of the world. The research cited in the last chapter indicated that by picking the larger or more technologically advanced side, you can predict victory in just less than 75% of the battles studied. This sounds impressive, until you recall that by flipping a coin you can predict victory 50% of the time. The fact that the smaller side does win, and not infrequently, is what excites our interest. To start to answer the question of what it takes to win, what it takes to put Boyd's Trinity to useful effect, let's continue with our initial case study, the Blitzkrieg. Key Advantages of the Blitzkrieg Armies that engage in Blitzkrieg and maneuver warfare in general differ in fundamental ways from armies designed to conduct attrition warfare. Blitzkrieg strategies do not aim to execute the same maneuvers as other forms of warfare, such as charging across no man's land only more quickly. In a typical operation, blitzing units don't expose themselves to direct enemy fire any more than absolutely necessary. They seem to loom up from out of nowhere to overwhelm a section of the enemy's line, then penetrate to create surprise and confusion in the rear. It is this abrupt, unexpected, and disorienting pattern of action that forms the basis of a strategy. The people who created the style of warfare in the late 19th and first part of the 20th centuries realized early on that it required a type of discipline different from the mindless obedience to orders that characterized the Prussian armies of Frederick the Great in the mid-1700s. Modern weapons are extremely lethal, and opportunities to surprise and shock an intelligent enemy are fleeting. Soldiers at all levels must be free to, must be required to use their creativity, intelligence, and initiatives to work around the enemy's weapons and generate and exploit opportunities. Gradually, the Prussians and others, largely within Germany, evolved a culture that fostered this type of fighting spirit. Although its elements can all be found in Sun Tzu, the Germans were the first to codify it in its present form and give it the terminology we use today. It conveys fighting power, to use the title of the book by Martin von Krevold, who insisted that the German army of World War II possessed more of it than any other modern military force. This is high praise from the Dean of Israeli Defense Analysts. The rest of this chapter uses the climate of Blitzkrieg to illustrate several principles of strategy. 
Some people may object, citing the terrible crimes committed by the Nazis against whoever did not fit their mold of acceptability. By using German strategy and their own words to describe it, are we not condoning or even glorifying Nazi actions? This is not my intention. One could argue that given the limitations of their systems, the Nazis' absolute refusal to learn anything from their Jewish population, who included many of Germany's most highly educated citizens, for example, they had put themselves at an enormous disadvantage relative to the rest of the world. I believe this is correct, and that they nearly won anyway gives further evidence of how good their strategy was. Those who would oppose fascist and totalitarian movements in the future would do well to consider this. Another reason for studying the Blitzkrieg is that it was the case study most intensely examined by the American defense strategist who derived the concepts of this book. They were struck by the brevity of the campaign and the low number of casualties, both of those in contrast to the years-long bloodbaths which had been fought over the same terrain a mere quarter of a century before. A final reason why strategists focused on the Blitzkrieg was that many of the people on both sides were still alive and willing to talk in detail about their experiences. This allowed the type of give and take needed to develop a coherent theory of what happened. In fact, other armies, notably the Israelis, use these principles today, and a study of guerrilla warfare, or fourth-generation warfare, as it is becoming known, reveals the same characteristics. Few of these, however, were willing to sit down and go into detail on strategies, which, particularly in the case of the Israelis and operatives from Al-Qaeda, they were still employing. Thus, the Blitzkrieg provided an almost ideal case study for the strategist, despite its connections to an abhorrent cause. By noting what American researchers saw in the German strategy and why it worked, we can begin to derive ideas that will prove useful in other competitive endeavors, namely business. After the war, American strategists did get the opportunity to talk at length with many of the practitioners of the Blitzkrieg. Amidst all the war stories, a pattern became clear. The roots of success in 1940 lay in the German system for dealing with people. It was cultural rather than technical. Here I am using cultural in the sense of business culture, not as a national trait. From his conversations with the German generals and his study of their experiences and doctrine, Boyd extracted the four concepts we're about to cover as the primary reasons for the German success. You don't have to be a tank commander in Central Europe to exploit these cultural properties. Boyd called them an organizational climate for operational success. And the organization can be a business, a political campaign, or of course, an army. Key Attributes of the Blitzkrieg Einheit, Mutual Trust, Unity, and Cohesion Fingerspritzengefühl, Intuitive Feel, especially for complex and potentially chaotic situations Auftragstaktik, Mission, generally considered as a contract between superior and subordinate Schwerpunkt, any concept that provides focus and direction to the operation. This climate will give a competitive advantage to any group of people who must work together in a confusing and threatening environment.
Chapter 5 will discuss in detail how these principles apply to business. So for now, let's take a brief look at the various components. For the same reason that students of lean production continue to use the original Japanese terms, such as Kanban, Kaizen, and Jidoka, I will from time to time throw in these German words. The purpose is to remind readers that translations are imprecise and possibly misleading. There is no English words that capture the complete meaning and connotations of these words. Einheit, mutual trust. Mutual trust, unity, and cohesion underlie everything. The military drives this point home to their young combat leaders who face perhaps the most difficult management challenge there is. Pick up any good book on leadership. I particularly like Small Unit Leadership, A Common Sense Approach by retired U.S. Army Colonel Mike Ballone because of the practical advice this decorated combat infantry leader gives young officers and NCOs. You cannot, he admonishes, give in to the urge to check and control everyone. In the heat of battle, there isn't time. You have to trust your soldiers and subordinate leaders to do the right thing under the stress of combat. But, and this is the key point, this trust cannot be wished for or assumed. It must be earned through the training and work together, as the German army did between the two world wars when it was reduced to a small corps of career professionals, an unintended consequence of the surrender terms imposed by the Allies at Versailles. The original German word, by the way, has a root meaning of one, and the word has a connotation of a unit, a unit of measurement or of an organization or even a device. It is no accident that this formulation of mutual trust heads the Blitzkrieg list. One of the contributors of the Blitzkrieg concept was, oddly enough, a British strategist, J.F.C. Fuller, whose works before World War II were carefully studied by the Germans. Although General Fuller was a pioneer of modern mechanized warfare, he also wrote that, quote, The essential factor in primitive tribal warfare was concord between members of the tribe. Normally, the same holds true among civilized nations, end quote. Bill Lind, a colleague of Boyd's and the author of one of the classics of maneuver warfare, a book that belongs on every strategist's bookshelf, Maneuver Warfare Handbook, wrote that, quote, both leadership and monitoring are valueless without trust. The contracts of intent and mission express that trust, that his subordinates will understand and carry out his desires, and trust by his subordinates that they will be supported when exercising their initiative. End quote. If there is a universally accepted truth in military science, then the fundamental role played by cohesion, unity, and trust must be it. 2,400 years before Fuller, Sun Tzu had concluded that he whose ranks are united in purpose will be victorious. And the Arab historian Ibn Khaldun, who is generally credited with writing the first modern analysis of history, echoed this theme in 1377 AD when he wrote, What is in fact proven to make for superiority is the situation with regard to group feeling. The rule is simple. The side with the stronger group feeling has great advantage. Thus, German General Heinz Gadeck, when asked about what makes a good commander, replied that first, they did not lead from the rear, and second, they commanded on the basis of mutual trust. 
post-war military analysts agreed. Teamwork was the key to German superiority. During its period of greatest triumph from 1948 to 1973, the Israeli army went to great lengths to build mutual trust. You could not, for example, come into the army as an officer. Everybody started out as an 18-year-old draftee or volunteer. From among this crowd, the best were selected to become NCOs and finally officers. Now here is the critical idea. While they were moving up, from squad leader to platoon leader and company commander, they generally stayed in their original units. All of the officers and sergeants shared a common background, knew each other's strengths and weaknesses, and could communicate rapidly and accurately using very few words. So perhaps it is ironic that today some Israelis credit trust for whatever success was achieved by the first intifada, the largely unarmed Palestinian uprising that caused Israel far more problems than the Arab armies ever did. Intifada leaders, it turned out, built mutual trust through years of organizing within Israeli prison camps. This trust on a person-to-person -person level had proven stronger than the factional rivalries that divided these leaders before they were jailed. The leadership of the Intifada earned mutual trust through their shared experiences in prison. Israeli military leaders acquired it through a similar crucible by working and fighting alongside each other during the constant crisis and frequent wars of the country's early history. Such an anvil of shared experience appears to be a necessary ingredient in forging a bond of trust. Boyd concluded that to be most effective, training and shared experiences must expose the organization to more and more complex and dangerous situations so that people finally learn to trust each other in the confusion of conflict. The result can win wars. Before even a significant number of U.S. forces had entered the Vietnam conflict in 1961, North Vietnamese Defense Minister Vo Nguyen Giap said, Through the long years of fighting and hard conditions of dangers and privations, our officers and men have loved each other like blood brothers, sharing hardships and joys together, united for life and in death. Certainly this is propaganda, and probably published for our benefit. That's the point. This is what Giap thought would impress his foreign readers. He didn't have the technology or the size to go head-to-head -head with the United States, but his message was that he wasn't going to fold easily either. And, of course, he didn't. Fingerspitzengefühl. Intuitive skill. Literally, a fingertip feeling or sensation. It is usually translated as intuitive skill or knowledge. It provides its owner an uncanny insight into confusing and chaotic situations and is often described as the ability to feel the battle. During the North African campaign, the British ascribed this seemingly mystical quality to Rommel because he always seemed to know what the British were going to do. Time and again, the desert fox would appear out of nowhere and to scatter British units and sow terror and destruction. As Gedeke described it, at the right moment, for which they all had a sure feel, his commanders would step into their airplanes or vehicles and go to the critical point of action to see whether everything was in order, or occasionally to really shake things up. General F.W. von Melenthin, who as a junior officer participated in the attack on France, 
noted that the German units crossing the Meuse on May 14, 1940, had, quote, practiced and rehearsed their roles for months, end quote. Their French opponents were not so well prepared. Fortunately, the French found it difficult to improvise a counterattack at short notice. Their tanks moved slowly and clumsily, and by the time they got into action, our anti-tank guns were arriving. Although the French attacked courageously, they showed little skill, and soon nearly 50 of their tanks were burning on the battlefield. Zen and other Oriental philosophies talk at great lengths about intuitive knowledge, but they also stress that it comes through years of experience and self-discipline. In medieval Japan, samurai warriors practiced with a longsword until it became as an extension of their arm. When the fight starts, you don't have time to stop and think about the fundamentals. In fact, one of the goals of Japanese samurai strategy was to cause this very stopping of the mind of their opponents. Auftrag, the contract of leadership. Once your team has achieved a high level of competence in performing individual and unit tasks, and where most communication is implicit and the need for written instructions is relatively rare, then you can start leading through missions as opposed to by assigning tasks, for example. Although hierarchies are not the only type of human organization, I am going to use terms like subordinate, faux de mieux. If this bothers you, substitute the person who has the vision for what needs to be done for a superior and a person whom he or she is going to ask to help accomplish it for subordinate. It should be noted, though, that there are few examples of effective combat units that were participatory democracies. The German word Auftrag, by the way, involves notions like assignment, mission, commission, mandate, order, as in purchase order, bid, and even request. The connotation in the military sense is more contract, implying some degree of negotiation and mutual agreement than simply a top-down task or order. Following Boyd, I am going to use the noun Auftrag in place of the more common and larger Auftragstatik, since the English word tactic can convey a misleading impression of this concept. Lind placed maneuver-type orders near the top of his list of the elements of maneuver warfare, saying, a maneuver warfare military believes it is better to have high levels of initiative among subordinate officers with a resultant rapid Boyd cycle, even if the price is some mistakes. In strategy, the mission concept was designed to allow maximum room for individual initiative while still accomplishing the unit's mission during the chaos of war. A mission order can be thought of as a virtual contract between superior and subordinate. If I am your superior and I order you to disrupt and delay enemy forces east of XYZ River, you have two choices. You can accept, in which case enemy forces east of the river are disrupted and delayed. There is no excuse for anything else, even if you and all your people get killed trying. Note that how you accomplish the mission is up to you, within any constraints that I put into the order. Your other choice, if you believe that you do not have the resources to carry out the order, or that it is just plain dumb, is to challenge it. The German system encouraged this, but once agreement was reached, the superior could assume that the mission would be accomplished. Now, this sounds brutal, a caricature of Prussian discipline. 
Such a contract, though, is only effective as part of an overall cultural milieu that includes such other elements as mutual trust and an intuitive sense of strategy. If we have built sufficient trust based on mutual experience, I know what you are capable of, and I trust you to do it if you agree to it. You trust me not to order you to do something that you cannot do or that will endanger you for no important strategic reason. How do we all know these things? Because we have trained and fought together over an extended time and earned this level of trust. We can make these decisions rapidly and accurately because of our intuitive competence. Schwerpunkt, focus and direction. This brings us to Schwerpunkt, which is any device or concept that gives focus and direction to our efforts. The word literally translates as hard or difficult point, but its real meaning is more like center of gravity, focal point, or main focus. It can also mean emphasis. The distinguishing characteristics of an effective focus is that all other activities of the organization must support it and that the people conducting these activities understand what the main effort is and know what they must to support it. Conversely, subordinates are expected to use their own initiatives to exploit opportunities, even if it means setting aside previously issued orders, whenever they can further the accomplishment of the focusing and directing mission, communicating this change back to the commander, of course. As you can see, this is a powerful concept for motivating subordinates, while at the same time harmonizing their energy to accomplish the commander's intent. For the attack on France, the panzer thrust through the southern sector of the campaign provided focus and direction for the whole operation. All of the activity at the north was intended to set up the Allies mentally and physically for the armored penetration in the south. Similarly, in the first Gulf War, Desert Storm, the Marines offshore and the visible massing of forces next to Kuwait set up Saddam Hussein for Schwarzkopf's famous left hook. This notion of setting up activities followed by a knockout punch is as old a concept as mutual trust. Its known roots go back thousands of years, and the ancient Chinese even had expressions for this type of strategy, calling the setup Cheng maneuvers to be followed at the decisive moment by the Qi knockout punch. Chapter 6 will explore the Cheng Qi pattern further and illustrate how it can be applied to business. By the middle of the 17th century in Japan, the concept of focus had evolved to a high level of sophistication and had taken on the psychological overtones that we will examine later in this chapter. In his classic on strategy, The Book of Five Rings, 1645, the samurai who is best known in the West, Miyamoto Musashi, removed the concept from the physical world entirely by designating the spirit of the opponent as the focus. Do not even consider risking a decision by cold steel until you have defeated the enemy's will to fight. This is a revealing statement by a man reported to have won some 60 bouts, virtually all of which ended in the death of his opponent. Not surprising when you consider that the samurai longsword, the tachi, was a four-foot blade of steel sharp as a modern razor and strong enough to chop cleanly through a water pipe. Once you accept Musashi's dictum as a strategic principle, then you might ask how to carry it out, how to actually defeat the opponent's spirit. Musashi was no mystic, 
and he grounded all of his methods in real actions his students could take. We will encounter him and his techniques many times in this book. The ability to rapidly shift the focus of one's effort is a key element in how a smaller force defeats a larger, since it enables the smaller force to create and exploit opportunities before the larger force can marshal reinforcements. Lind notes, and this is especially relevant to business, that the focus is often a concept rather than a unit, and so shifting it requires a mental as well as physical change. Chapter 5 will explore this notion further. So you won't think that I'm glorifying everything the German army did. It is interesting to note that the Germans themselves violated the focus and direction principle one year after their blitzkrieg had so spectacularly defeated France. In his critique on the attack of Russia, Field General Gerard von Rundstedt, commander of the Army Group A, which spearheaded the Blitzkrieg, noted that instead of a clearly defined Schwerpunkt against Leningrad in the north, Moscow in the center, or Stalingrad in the south, they simply tried all three. Part of the reason for this strategic lapse undoubtedly came from the dismal performance of Soviet troops against Finland in the Russo-Finnish War, 1939-1940, and another example of a small force dealing defeat after defeat upon a larger one until numbers finally wore them down. In part reflected Hitler's belief in the innate superiority of some Aryan race. In any case, an arrogant disrespect for the opponent has proven fatal in most every arena of competition. Implicit communication. The German organizational climate encouraged people to act and to take the initiative, even during the terror and chaos of war. Within this climate, the principles of mutual trust and intuitive competence make much of implicit communication, as opposed to detailed written instructions. The Germans felt that they had no alternative. As the chief of the Prussian general staff in the Franco-Prussian War, 1870-1871, Field Marshal Helmut von Moltke, Observed in the mid-1800s, the greater risk is the loss of time that comes from always trying to be explicit. Whereas General Gadecki commented about his unit in World War II, if he had tried to write everything down, we would have been too late with every attack we ever attempted. The notion of implicit communication also has deep roots in Zen, another of Boyd's primary influences. Thomas Cleary, in his Japanese Art of War, which may have been Boyd's all-time favorite book next to Sun Tzu himself, emphasizes the importance Zen places on mind-to-mind -mind communication. As Cleary notes, this has nothing to do with telepathy or other mystical nonsense, but clearly means the transmission of Zen through objective experience, that is, through actions in the real world, which is how Boyd and the maneuver warfare theorists built mutual trust and unit cohesion. It is true that the Germans did not always apply these principles well and sometimes forgot them entirely. Len Deaton even claims that there was only one true blitzkrieg, the May 1940 attack on France. Defense analyst and Boyd acolyte Pierre M. Spray, who translated and assisted in several of Boyd's interviews with German generals, estimated that the climate was only fully implemented in maybe one half of 1% of the army the small circle around Heinz Goderian that Spray calls brilliant rebels. 
In this sense, the Israeli army of 1956 and 1967 was superior man for man to the German army of 1940. Meanwhile, back in the States. In the early 1950s, then Lieutenant John Boyd noticed, as did many others, that although the best Russian fighter of the Korean War, the MiG-15, was roughly equal to his F-86, and in some ways even better, Americans won 10 air battles for every one they lost. Sure, part of this was better training, but even when we got our hands on MiGs later on and flew them with our own pilots, the F-86 still won more than it should. Many years later, Boyd tried using his energy maneuverability concept to explain why the F-86 was able to compile such a lopsided record. Energy maneuverability, EM, is a mathematical technique for telling under what conditions one fighter will be able to turn tighter and accelerate faster than another. Since experience had shown that the fighter that could turn or accelerate better usually gained a decisive advantage, EM had become the official fighter doctrine of the Air Force. Even EM, though, could not explain the F-86 advantage because the MiG's numbers were at least as good at many altitude and airspeed combinations, and at some altitudes and at some airspeeds, better. The secret turned out to be that the F-86 had a bubble canopy, allowing the pilot much better observation of the fight and full hydraulic controls, which is like power steering for fighters. Although the MiG could, in certain circumstances, turn tighter than the F-86, its heavier controls meant that by the time the MiG pilot had his airplane doing one thing, the F-86 was already doing something else. The MiG's theoretically higher EM performance rarely led to wins in actual or even in practice air-to-air -air combat. This caused Boyd a lot of problems, since his reputation in the Air Force as a whole rested on his EM theory. After he retired in 1975 and after much thought, Boyd decided that the F-86 won because it could generate something called asymmetric fast transients. A transient is a shift from one state to another. Fast refers to the time it takes to make the shift, not, as is often thought, the velocity of the aircraft itself. And asymmetric means that one side is better at it than the other. An asymmetric fast transient, though, is not a traditional maneuver done more quickly, even much more quickly. In business, it should not conjure up an image of doing what you're doing now, just doing it faster. The transient is the change between maneuvers. In Boyd's concept, the ideal asymmetric fast transient is an abrupt, unexpected, jerky, disorienting change that causes at least a hesitation and preferably plants the seeds of panic in the other side. It's a what the frack change in circumstances, and it is the interval when the opponent is trying to comprehend what the frack is, Boyd would strike. What this described vis-a-vis -vis the MiG and the F-86 is that the American fighter could set up novel and unexpected conditions and exploit them before the Russian could react with his sometimes superior EM capability. It soon became clear that unlike EM, which only describes combat between fighters, Fast transients can be found in most any form of competition. Boyd and his colleagues began analyzing war in general, and time after time, the idea of asymmetric fast transients 
where one side could create and then exploit situations more rapidly than the other seemed to explain why the winning side won. The great Olympic and professional boxer Muhammad Ali said virtually the same thing when he described his strategy as float like a butterfly, sting like a bee. Boyd inferred that if you can do things before the other side reacts, you can greatly increase your chances of winning, and it doesn't make much difference how big or how strong the other guy is. Asymmetric fast transients, in other words, appeared to do a much better job of explaining real-world results than simple counts of weapons or assessments of technology. It would surprise nobody that you can tip the balance of war if you can hit the other guy and get out before he can hit back, if you can cause damage without taking it in return. Boyd went beyond destruction in body counts, however, when he began to focus on the deteriorating mental state of the slower party. He observed that the quicker side in modern warfare was often able to produce the psychological results of Table 1 back in Chapter 2, even before the psychological damage became decisive. The pieces of the new strategy were falling into place. Agility, meet the OODA loop. Our strategic directives were dynamism, initiative, mobility, and rapidity of decision in the face of new situations. General Vo Nguyen Giap. The idea that operating at a quicker time pace than one's opponent can produce psychological effects offers a way out of the bigger or more expensive is better syndrome. An opponent who cannot make decisions to employ his forces effectively his command and staff functions become paralyzed by bickering and bureaucracy, for example, is defeated before the engagement begins, no matter how many weapons sit in his inventory. In this way, one could truly achieve Sun Tzu's goal of winning without fighting. To be useful, though, the new theory needed a concrete representation of abrupt, asymmetric fast transients outside of the realm of air combat. After examining many wars, battles, and engagements, Boyd synthesized his now well-known OODA loop. A participant in a conflict, any conflict, may be thought of as engaging in four distinctive, although not distinct, activities. He must observe the environment, which includes himself, his opponent, the physical, mental, and moral situation, and potential allies and opponents. He must orient himself to decide what it all means. Boyd calls orientation a many-sided implicit cross-referencing process involving the information observed, one's genetic heritage, social environment, and prior experiences, and the results of analysis one conducts and the synthesis that one forms. He must reach some type of decision. He must attempt to carry out that decision. That is, he must act. Hence, the OODA loop. We will spend many pages on OODA loop concepts, but for now, here are a few introductory remarks. Observe means much more than to see. Absorb might be more descriptive if it did not have a passive undertone. Go out and get all the information you can by whatever means possible is even closer. You can never be sure beforehand which stray idea will provide the key to unlock some fatal dilemma. German strategists recognized that this was as important to the soldier in the foxhole as for the general in his headquarters. As General Hermann Balk, whom Boyd regarded as one of World War II's best field commanders, 
and whose rifle regiment was one of the first across the Meuse during the Blitzkrieg, put it, The training of the infantrymen can never be too many-sided. Musashi, who gave up bathing and other activities generally associated with personal hygiene, still insisted that his disciples be open to all areas of knowledge, that they cultivate the arts in particular, and he produced calligraphy and watercolors that are admired today. Orient is the key to the process. Conditioned by one's genetic heritage, surrounding culture, and previous learning, the mind combines fragments of ideas, information, conjectures, impressions, etc., to form the many-sided implicit cross-references which become a new orientation. How well your orientation matches the real world is largely a function of how well you observe, since in Boyd's conception, observe is the only input from the outside. Like the canopy on the Korean-era MiGs, anything that restricts the inflow of information or ideas can lead to mismatches, disorientations, between what you think is happening and what actually is, and may also delay you from spotting and so acting upon these mismatches. Since what you're looking for is mismatches, a general rule is that bad news is the only kind that will do you any good. To thrive in any form of maneuver conflict, you must seek out and find data that doesn't fit with your current worldview, and you must do this while there is still time. Otherwise, the world will change, or more likely, your adversaries or competitors will change it for you, and you will find yourself disoriented and in the position of playing catch-up. You will have lost the initiative, which is dangerous in any conflict. In the military, the function of obtaining and understanding information from the outside is called intelligence. Today, despite a stream of intelligence failures, intelligence is not highly prized in the U.S. military establishment. The highest-ranking uniformed officer in charge of the Defense Department Intelligence Organization wears three stars, one less than the general who runs purchasing and weapons deployment for the Air Force. This is certainly not the way an organization operating according to Boyd would do things. As Sun Tzu put it in the last chapter of The Art of War, No reward is more generous than that for a spy. There is nothing for which one cannot employ spies. Those who know the situation in the marketplace serve the role of spies for the leaders of modern companies. They will sometimes be bearers of bad news, and if you follow the Sun Tzu tradition, they will bear this news to you while there is still time to act. They are the saviors of the company and should be recognized and rewarded as such. True, it takes a strong leader to admit publicly that a position that he or she championed is now wrong or outdated. But in this day and age, companies without strong leaders are doomed anyway. Those listeners who are entering management with the goal of someday sitting in a corner office and receiving the supplications of underlings should put this book down now. Decisions can transition us into the action stage. For an individual, though, if observe and orient were done well, you just know what to do the vast majority of the time. Such implicit decision-making is another way to look at the notion of intuitive competence. For groups, explicit decisions, which are how the decision stage of the OODA loop is usually interpreted, can serve to set and, when needed, shift the main focus. That is, they can focus and give direction to large numbers of individuals. If, however, you look at Boyd's final version of the OODA loop in the appendix, you'll see a couple of implicit guidance and control arrows, reflecting that most decision-making can and should be implicit, and that quite often, orientation controls action directly without the need for explicit decisions at all. 
This means that in the UTA concept as Boyd envisioned it, competition is not a simple cycle. This is a critical idea that is often misunderstood. You are simultaneously observing any mismatches between your conception of the world and the way the world really is, trying to reorient to a confusing and threatening situation and attempting to come up with ideas to deal with it. It is the quickness of the entire cycle, and in particular, the time it takes, in Boyd's language, to transition from one orientation state to another, and not just or even particularly the speed of the OODA axis that determines agility and competitive power. So the most effective visualization of the OODA loop is not a cycle that goes from orient, decide, act, and observe, but something which has an implicit guidance and control line that connects orientation directly to action, skipping decision. Boyd's final conception of the OODA loop is only slightly more complex. It bears repeating that if you cannot or do not spot mismatches, and generally this means finding bad news, your orientation becomes detached from reality. Then, since decision and action flow from orientation, your decisions, implicit and explicit, will be flawed and your actions will not have the effects you intend. Furthermore, you won't understand why all this is happening to you despite your best efforts, and breakdowns at both the group and individual levels can be expected. You will have lost the initiative, and short of sheer dumb luck, you are going to lose the conflict. What all this does to the other side. Business is a dogfight. Your job as a leader, outmaneuver the competition. That's why the OODA loop, the brainchild of 42nd Boyd, an unconventional fighter pilot, is one of today's most important ideas in battle or in business. Boyd got the idea for the OODA loops, he used dashes to indicate that the steps are not distinct but flow into each other, from observing the effects of jerky, unexpected, and abrupt maneuvers in air-to-air -air combat. After deciding that it was his quick OODA loops that allowed him to fight in this way, Boyd defined agility in these terms. A side in a conflict or competition is more agile than its opponent if it can execute its OODA loops more quickly. This generalizes the term agility from air-to-air -air combat and from warfare in general. It also turns out to be equivalent to the definition floated in Chapter 2, the ability to rapidly change one's orientation since it is orientation locking up under stress of competition and conflict that causes OODA loops to slow down and makes one predictable rather than abrupt and unpredictable. Speed, that is, physical velocity, may provide an important tactical option, but it is not the way. In fact, speed increases momentum, which can make one more predictable. What Boyd discovered was that the side with the quicker OODA loops began to exert a strange and terrifying effect on its opponent. Quicker OODA execution caused the slower side to begin falling further and further behind events, to begin to lose touch with the situation. Acting like the asymmetric fast transients experienced by fighter pilots, these mismatches with reality caused the more agile side to start becoming ambiguous in the mind of the less agile. Ambiguity is a terrible thing much more effective as a strategy than deception, with which it is often confused. Deception is correctly described as a tactic. If you are deceived, 
you will be surprised when you discover the truth, and it is possible that you will be led to do some things, perhaps even fatal things, that you would not have done if you had realized the truth earlier. It can be an extremely effective tactic, even though your ability to function as a thinking human being is not at risk. This is exactly what you can attack and destroy using ambiguity. Sun Tzu insisted that all warfare was based on deception. There is no conflict, however, between ambiguity and deception, since the first provides an environment for generating the second. As Brigadier General Samuel Griffith noted in his introduction to his translation of The Art of War, Sun Tzu realized that an indispensable preliminary to battle was to attack the mind of the enemy, ideally to drive him insane, that is, beyond the ability to operate as a rational human being. One advances not in the open, for example, where even massive forces can be assessed logically, but by devious and hidden routes, employing feigns and disguises. If something vital, such as life itself, is at stake, losing track of a deadly threat in the fog of ambiguity can lead to confusion, panic, terror, which was the idea behind those Alfred Hitchcock classics, which in turn will cause the decision-making of the less agile party to break down. Deception then becomes like taking candy from a baby, and at this point he can easily be finished off, should that be necessary. Friction. Friction, wrote 19th century Prussian general and philosopher Karl von Clausewitz, is the only conception that more or less corresponds to that which distinguishes real war from war on paper. Along with his insistence that war is the continuation of politics by other means, it is his most famous quote. Yet it says less than it seems to. The implication is that you analyze war on paper, nowadays on a computer, and what you cannot capture there is, by definition, friction. In Boyd's concept of strategy, this misses the whole point. What's inherently important in conflict, such as factors of trust, focus and direction, intuitive competence, leading through mission orders, and employing rapid OODA loops to shroud the enemy in a fog of ambiguity and destroy his ability to function, these aren't captured by war on paper at all, and it's not a matter of a little friction getting in the way. Oddly, Clausewitz was well aware of many of these same things, and when he describes the effects of friction, he and Boyd are not far apart. Clausewitz illustrates friction through the simile that doing things in battle is like moving in water. This doesn't sound too bad, but imagine that you're trying to escape from a pursuing sheriff's posse. Hounds are baying, bullets are zinging overhead, suddenly you run off a bank and plunge into a river. As you thrash around waist deep, you find that the faster you go, the harder everything is. Your life depends on moving faster, but you can't, and the harder you try, the more frustrated you get. It won't take much of this before panic begins to sink in, and you lose the ability to make effective decisions, very much like the effect Boyd and Sun Tzu aim for. They don't come directly from the physical difficulty of moving through water so much as from not knowing how far away the dogs are and from the fact that nothing you're trying seems to be making the situation any better and you're running out of ideas fast. It's not industrial strength ambiguity. You know that there are just dogs out there, although not exactly where, and deputies with shotguns, and you know that there's no giant sharks cruising in the muddy waters, 
and so you will probably not descend all the way into blubbering imbecility. Friction, however, is best discussed in terms of groups of people competing against each other. It arises inevitably from the problems of trying to get people in groups to work together, because under conditions of stress, group dynamics can make the simplest tasks extremely difficult, as Clausewitz observed. Like the Japanese samurais before him, Boyd insisted, and it is a cornerstone of his strategy and a fundamental difference with Clausewitz, that in a competitive situation, friction need not be left to chance. Boyd prescribes active measures to generate and magnify friction in the mind of the opponent, and one good way to do this is through operating at a quicker decision tempo, quicker OODA loops. As ambiguity and frustration grow in the decision-making councils of the slower side, Klauswitz's friction will grow right along with them. Uda, Friction, and the Blitzkrieg. The Germans, or some small faction of them, were able to execute and sustain fast decision cycles, even against the friction of war, because they had instilled an organizational climate or culture that mitigated friction's effects. More important than Boyd's view was that by accelerating their OODA loops, they could generate those unexpected, abrupt, and jerky transients such as when they suddenly appeared in force in the South that enabled them to pump up the friction on the Allied side. It wasn't that the Germans were smarter than the French or could peer farther into the future. No. Their secret of success lay in that organizational climate, which enabled them to better exploit the chaos that would come, and, in fact, that they were helping to create. We will return to this process and apply it to business in Chapter 5. As the first example of how modern organizations apply the ideas we have been discussing, this chapter will close with a brief look at how the U.S. military have incorporated agility into their doctrines. Agility in U.S. Military Doctrine The reason we're winning is that we're kind of outthinking him. We're operating inside his decision cycle. Brigadier General Richard Neal, U.S. Central Command, Riyadh, Saudi Arabia, February 1991. The Army was the first to put the concept of agility into formal written doctrine. In their field manual 3-0, Operations, the Army tells its soldiers that agility is the ability to move and adjust quickly and easily. It springs from trained and disciplined forces. Agility requires that subordinates act to achieve commander's intent and fight through obstacles to accomplish the mission. Organizational agility stems from the capability to deploy and employ forces across the range of Army operations. Army forces and commanders shift among offensive, defensive, stability, and support operations as circumstances and missions require. This capability is not merely physical, it requires conceptual sophistication and intellectual flexibility. Tactical agility is the ability of a friendly force to react faster than the enemy. It is essential to seizing, retaining, and exploiting the initiative. Agility is mental and physical. Agile commanders quickly comprehend unfamiliar situations, creatively apply doctrine, and make timely decisions. The Army considers initiative practically an object of worship, so you can see what a strong statement this is.
On the other hand, they don't bring out the notion that tactical agility is more than the ability to react faster than the enemy, nor do they consider the effects a more agile force has on the mind of its opponent. Note that the army omits the time element from operational agility, making it more like flexibility than Boyd's concept of agility. The army has made efforts to institutionalize agility in its culture. Before the first Gulf War, the army established a year-long course the School of Advanced Military Studies, SAMS, at Fort Leavenworth, Kansas, where a select group of command and staff college graduates study ways to apply warfare based on rapid decision cycles, maneuver warfare. Boyd worked with SAMS founder, then Colonel Hubba Wazdasej, and lectured there on several occasions. SAMS alumni call themselves Jedi Knights, and General Schwarzkopf's staff in Riyadh contained upward of 60 of them. Air Force basic doctrine used to take a more sophisticated approach than the Army, or at least what the Army wrote down in its doctrine. Instead of agility, they called it timing and tempo, and their 1984 basic doctrine manual made it clear what they were expected to accomplish. Timing and tempo allow friendly forces to dominate the action, remain unpredictable, and create uncertainty in the mind of the enemy. For a strategist, Create uncertainty is a powerful concept since it opens possibilities to exploit these uncertainties and create the sort of chaos that Boyd envisioned. The 1996 version of this manual is much more conventional in its thinking, though, and drops the emphasis on timing and tempo. Boyd's involvement with the U.S. Air Force strategy and doctrine was limited, and as Robert Oram related in his biography of Boyd, senior Air Force leaders largely ignored his work. Long after his retirement, though, his ideas did enjoy some renaissance at the Air War College, if not in the broader Air Force. He was invited to participate in two Chief of Staff-sponsored studies at the War College, and he also presented Patterns of Conflict and his other briefings there. Professor Grant Hammond, chair of the Center for Strategy and Technology, interviewed Boyd and many of his associates during these sessions and wrote a biography published in 2001. The Navy developed a sophisticated view of agility, particularly as applied to command and control. In Naval Command and Control, NDP-6, they state that, however, the essential lesson of the decision and execution cycle is the absolute importance of generating tempo, maintaining rapid decision and execution cycles, and thus a rapid tempo of operations, requires that seniors and subordinates alike have an accurate image of the battle space and a shared vision of what needs to be done. Commanders are able to experience superior situational awareness and make more effective decisions, enabling them to exercise initiative during combat. NDP-6 also describes the OODA loop in some detail and describes the role of orientation in words reminiscent of Boyd's own. The document, issued in May 1995, established official doctrine for both the Navy and the Marine Corps, and was signed by both the Chief of Naval Operations, the highest-ranking officer in the Navy, and the Commandant of the Marine Corps. As in the Army's concept, note the emphasis on initiative. The most advanced combat doctrine belongs to the U.S. Marine Corps, which is part of the Department of the Navy. Their manual, MCDP-1, Warfighting, lays out a concept of maneuver warfare entirely consistent with the ideas of agility that we have been exploring. By our actions, we seek to impose menacing dilemmas in which events happen unexpectedly and faster than the enemy can keep up with them. 
The ultimate goal is panic and paralysis, an enemy who has lost the will to resist. Thus, the Marines subscribe to Musashi's designation of the enemy's spirit as the Schwerpunkt. At this point, the battle is won, and all that is left is to march the prisoners off to camp. Boyd worked closely with the originators of Marine Maneuver Warfare Doctrine, particularly the team under Colonel Mike Wiley that wrote Warfighting, and also gave his briefings there on several occasions. The U.S. Marine Corps Library at Quantico, Virginia, holds Boyd's archives, and the Commandant at the time of Boyd's death, General Charles Corlack, wrote a moving eulogy. Does it work? Here's what then-Secretary of Defense Cheney told the President and the Congress in the first annual report after the first Gulf War. The effectiveness of our Marine Corps forces was dramatically demonstrated by the brilliant maneuvers of one MEF through numerically superior defensive forces in Kuwait City, revalidating that maneuver warfare doctrine adopted by the Corps. As we now know from Robert Quorum's book, Secretary Cheney summoned Boyd to Washington several times during Desert Shield, the prelude to the liberation of Kuwait, Desert Storm, and the final version of the plan reflected Boyd's ideas on maneuver warfare. Agility is a natural concept for the Marines. They form a mobile striking force that aims to get ashore and consolidate a beachhead before the enemy figures out what is going on. An abrupt, unexpected, and disorienting maneuver, much like creating a market niche, one might say. In the following chapters, we'll explore in detail how Boyd's conception of agility can be adapted to the kinds of conflicts commonly encountered in business. You have been listening to the Patterns of Conflict, Patterns of Thought podcast. This episode has been an unabridged production of Sting Like a Bee, Chapter 3 of Certain to Win, The Strategy of John Boyd Applied to Business, by Chet Richards, narration by Michael Godek, copyright 2004, audio production 2023, Chittinga Press. The theme music is The Battle of 1066 by Patrick Petrikos under Creative Commons. Find supporting graphics at www.patternsofconflict.com. Art credits, Anna Michelle Godek. For more insights into the principles of John Boyd applied to business, follow the podcast, where you'll find subsequent chapters of Certain to Win, along with companion interviews. People, ideas, and hardware, in that order. Thanks for listening. You know, you've always been a target, Cassius, but you're going around saying you're not going to reveal any of your strategies. Now, can't you tell us a little bit about, uh, I notice you're not working the small bag. Uh, you're doing a lot of, lot of shadow boxing, a lot of moving around. Is this uh, the running you're going to be doing? No, I don't run. I dance. Sugar Ray never did run. He danced. <laughs> dance. I told, you, I told you, I float like a butterfly. I don't run. It's a different than dancing. I can knock a man up.